Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Ben Levno from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview with Dr. Klein. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we'll be discussing some changes that we're making to our myasthenia gravis and Lambert-Eaton syndrome test menu. But before we get started, I'm joined here today by Dr. Chris Klein. Sir, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and telling them a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Ben. I am a neurologist here practicing at the Mayo Clinic since 1995, and I have specialty interest in the neuromuscular disorders. And because of that, I've gravitated to utility of testing, and I have joint appointments in the neuroimmunology laboratory, in neurophysiology laboratory, and in a specialist in neuromuscular disease. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's really unique, your expertise in both the laboratory environment and also seeing patients. It gives us here at Mayo Clinic Laboratories just a unique perspective on what patients need, what physicians need, and then developing the testing to follow suit. So like I said, we're going to talk about myasthenia gravis, primarily Lambert-Eaton syndrome too, but the changes that are being made. We recently published a large paper that studied how to make this kind of testing more accurate. I don't want this to be a review of the paper, sir, but could you just give maybe a recap of one of uh, some of the key takeaways and then direct people to where they could find it? It initiated the test or the, the paper rather because of our observations in our clinics that maybe some of the things that were included were not added value and maybe in fact delaying the, the turnaround time for our test. And so historically we've been doing myasthenia tests Dr. Van der Linden actually started this and was the first testing that we had all available in the neuroimmunology lab way back in the you know, 80s, where she looked at a very large group of myasthenics with the clinician, Frank Howard. And what they learned was that there was a great value in uh, looking at the acetylcholine antibodies. So the receptor uh, binding, modulating, and others. But their numbers were fairly small and it wasn't the case that it had been validated in a laboratory environment. So, but it was sort of a historical bouquet of testing, including striational antibodies, because it was thought back then when CT imaging was not probably as good as it is today, that it could add value to concern about a patient with myasthenia having underlying thymoma. So we really wanted to revisit the testing algorithm in a modern era when we have advanced neurophysiologic testing, improve CT imaging to know what is the best test offering. And all we did was we simply took four years of patients evaluated here, all having been seen at the Mayo Clinic, having undergone neurophysiology testing, meeting the clinico-physiologic diagnosis of myasthenia gravis, and all those that did not. So we knew the true patients and the false patients, and we looked at how the, the, the testing worked not only for the sort of workhorses, the binding and modulating, but for all the other things that were previously on our algorithm. And we learned in this very well-vetted group of patients that you got in trouble with modulating alone. You got in trouble with binding alone. And we saw a huge value in MUSK, where we 
learned that those rare patients, meaning, you know, sort of 20% of patients with a primarily ocular myasthenia that did not have antibodies, that the Musk test actually provided greater value in terms of finding the cause of the patient's problem. In the end, when we looked at every permutation and combination of the prior offerings, we learned that the best sensitivity and specificity could be obtained, not only in the diagnosis of myasthenia, but in the ascertainment of an underlying malignancy by just two tests at upfront. So binding first, and if positive, modulating. And so what that does is you gain the incredible sensitivity of acetylcholine binding with the incredible specificity of the acetylcholine modulating test. And in that way, we pushed our sensitivity up. And most importantly, we increased our specificity because previously a modulating alone could have been reported out as a positive result. Whereas now we think if that were to occur, it'd be more likely to be a false positive than a true positive. In fact, that change led to a 50% drop in our false positive rates by just doing that one change alone. And so that we also learned the other reflexes that included crimp, potassium channels, and others really didn't add value beyond the CAT scan imaging of the chest. And the striational performed very poorly in the prediction of thymoma. It was neither sensitive nor specific and led to multiple patients having undergone unnecessary testing who did not have myasthenia gravis based on the results of the striational antibody positivity. So I think that's the most of what I want to say. There's obviously more. The paper is actually published in neurology last year, 2020. If people want to read more about it, they could just type in myasthenia gravis in my name and they'll get you to the paper. I think it's just another great example of where Mayo Clinic Laboratories is constantly pushing the field forward. And myasthenia gravis testing, I think you've told me, Dr. Klein has been around for, I mean, you said it, uh, decades, right? It was one of the first tests discovered but we're not satisfied with the status quo and we continue to you know, look for ways to make it better. Exactly, and sometimes the, the status quo isn't because what was done initially was incorrect. It was based on the limitations of the other testing. So as electrophysiology improved, as imaging improved, the sensitivity and specificities of the various tests change for the ascertainment of not only myasthenia, but for cancer. I just want to tease out the role of musk a little bit more, Dr. Klein. We have chosen to change our menu so that our workhorse, if you will, will automatically reflex to musk for those binding negative patients. That's a little bit of a change from our previous menu. So can you just help the audience understand why that's necessary and why it's the best thing for patient care? So I think that I can address all laboratory-based tests simple concepts of sensitivity and specificity. So sensitivity has to do with the fact is, how many times do you do the test when a person really has a disease that you can pick it up? And specificity has to do with how many times when they don't have the disease do you say they do? And so what we learned is that musk is a very sensitive and specific test for patients have no binding or modulating antibodies. Let me give you an example. So in, a, in an ocular myasthenic, we know that as much as 25% of them will have a, a double serologic negative, so binding and modulating negative, but they could have early musk. So if you reflex those double negatives, the hit rate in our laboratory for a musk positivity was around 35%. So you take that 
previously seronegative patient and you by a, a third will reduce their false negative result. Then we also learned that it has a very high specificity. So we are not finding people with the musk antibody who do not have it. And so how do we know this? Well, you can look at the rates of thymoma. So musk patients do not get thymoma. That's important by knowing that they have musk, the need to do a CT of their chest is now not there. And even more importantly, now that data has clearly arisen of the value of endoscopic thymectomy, you definitely should not be doing an endoscopic thymectomy on a person with musk. So there's sensitivity, there's specificity, and then there's value. By having the reflex to musk, we're increasing your sensitivity, we're increasing your specificity, and it has huge implications to patient management. Not only should they not have a thymectomy and maybe not a CT chest, but they also have a, a different treatment response compared to the classic myasthenic. So they may be more likely to benefit from a longer course of steroids and be less likely to respond to mestinon, for instance. So there are lots of things it can do to not only avoid unnecessary testing and unnecessary procedures, but get them on the proper therapy you know, more rapidly. That sounds great to me, sir. I think the role of musk is well understood, but it is a slight change in that it's going to automatically reflex. But the point of that is also to reduce turnaround time, right, Dr. Klein? Yeah, if you have to then reorder, redraw, recontact the patient. And, you know, I'm a practicing physician, and in the current world, you know, of our electronic medical record, this is all very hard for me. So I'm not going to be doing an individual incremental reorder and recontacting my patient, et cetera. The other thing I would say is we can do this because of the sensitivity and accuracy of the double negative. So if somebody really is double negative, I have great confidence with the Mayo lab that I'm not missing a binding, especially in a patient with generalized myasthenia. Now we do know that, and that's another message I wanted to relay to the listeners is that there are a, a small percent of myasthenic patients that will seroconvert after their first symptoms. So repeating a binding and a modulating is not unreasonable, especially if the musk is negative. But I probably wouldn't do that if I wasn't certain musk was negative as well. So the triple negative, seronegative, triple negative are the ones that I might reconsider a repeat binding and modulating in. Dr. Lennon did a, a very nice study with uh, Dr. Chen a number of years ago, and they found that among those patients who are not on immunotherapy, that a very significant percent, about 30% of the, of the triple negatives at that time, is more the double negatives, would seroconvert when they are electrodiagnostically with the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. Thanks, Dr. Klein. It sounds like it'd be hard to give a definitive diagnosis without the testing that we're offering right now, right? I mean, that's the point of the study is increased accuracy. That should mean increased confidence for physicians. There's no question that's true. It is more true in some patients. And, you know, I'll share with you two quick patients I saw in the last two weeks. Uh, in the EMG lab last Friday, a patient came in with, had been in the nursing home for six months for dysphagia. The patient had no ptosis, which is a hallmark of most myasthenics, but slowly and insidiously developed a wrist drop and triceps weakness. 
and there are rare patients who can present like this as myasthenia gravis. So in this case, a very atypical phenotype, I did my EMG, we did repetitive stimulation, there was a decrement, which again gets pseudo decrements in a number of mimic diseases like motor neuron disease or like in myopathies. So a mild decrement could be another alternative diagnosis. So here it was extremely helpful. I mean, this is the, the end of the spectrum where it's absolutely essential because the binding and modulating were off the, off the charts. He was admitted to the hospital, got IVIG, steroids, and in three days, and that plus mesonon, he was now able to swallow. He was able to leave the nursing home and he'd been there without his wife because of the COVID. And these are the kind of cases where the serology just really gives you that confidence. The more atypical they are, the more helpful the antibody testing can be helpful. You know, that really cinches the diagnosis. A clinical electrophysiologic serologic diagnosis are the patients that have the most likely chance for a wonderful treatment response with immunotherapy and moving to thymectomy. Another thing that I want to highlight that we talked, that you all talked about in your study was the approach to that serological testing is either confirmatory or screening. And our test, because of our increased accuracy, is able to handle either one of those approaches. But what advice would you give for physicians or even laboratorians that, you know, might be trying to use our test most efficiently? Are there any pre-test tools or patients that you wouldn't order this on to give them some guidance on how to use our menu as efficiently as possible? Right. So just to remind your listeners that this, these are all Mayo Clinic patients. So they all had been seen by neuromuscular experts. And, you know, even still about two thirds of the patients ended up not having myasthenia gravis. And so you look back at those charts and say, well, why would this expert in neuromuscular disease be ordering myasthenia valve for something that ends up not being myasthenia? Well, a lot of these patients had sort of vague, fatigable symptoms. Many of them had double vision and it turned out their double vision was from thyroid disease or from an early meningioma in their brain, or the fatigue issues were related to other more complex medical issues. That said, the tests were appropriately ordered because you don't want to miss myasthenia gravis. It has cancer risk implications. It has very specific treatments. And for many doctors, you may only get one shot at their patient because they come and go back to their normal lives. So we're really trying to get the appropriate person to the appropriate test. But in myasthenia, the differential is quite large. So the, the sort of things that you definitely should not be ordering you know, this testing in would be someone who has an acute onset weakness of the arms and legs. You know, that would be much more likely to be something else like a Guillain-Barre or something like a tumor. And so in that pre-test probability scenario would be very unlikely to help you versus the, uh, the kind of patients that typically come in with myasthenia, which is early double vision or early ptosis, and then fatigability in their arms or legs throughout the day. And then, of course, that's the best pre-test probability. Thanks, Dr. Klein. And also, I want to remind all of our audience, specifically those that order our testing, that we'll still continue to offer binding as a standalone and musk as a standalone. However, given the research that you've done, Dr. Klein, do you still see a place, and if so, where for the binding as a standalone for these type of patients? The only way I could imagine a scenario where that would be 
necessary is in inefficiencies in whatever human network we have set up, whether it's related to their workflow, oversight by somebody at their institution. So, but practically speaking with the needs of the patient coming first, I can't imagine myself ever doing that. Because for instance, we saw very frequently low value binding antibody positivity in patients with a number of things on the differential diagnosis I mentioned that don't have the disorder. So even in patients with thyroid disease who have a little bit of a neuropathy or a little bit of a mind, their binding antibody can be elevated. And so it really is not, in my mind, a true standalone test. You know, uh, unless there's some really extenuating circumstance, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to do it this way, not only in terms of sensitivity and specificity, but just in the workflow of a busy clinic where I don't want to be hassled with having to recontact the patient and do go through all those things. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm really excited about this testing. Low cutoff values, ensure that we don't miss patients. Confirmatory testing means that we're not having false positives. And then an automatic reflex to MUS to ensure that we're not missing a different kind of patient. So what would you say, Dr. Klein, to conclude that you're most excited about regarding these changes at Mayo Clinic Labs? I think it's all good. It basically improves values. It improves accuracy. And included in the value statement, not only are we trying to get it right, but we're trying to do it with the best use of dollars. We want to be good stewards of the resources that we have in medicine. And I think this is a very big step forward to do that. Great. I'm excited to hear how uh, physicians that we work with respond. So thanks for helping us unpack these changes a little bit, Dr. Klein. Look forward to talking to you again soon and uh, have a good day. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.